Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. This morning, I want us to continue what we started a month ago already. Time flies when you're having fun. The idea of this morning is to come to the realization that it is impossible to really know God and not live a life of repentance. So, in conjunction to that, we know that most of us tend to categorize all sin into two categories. My sin and your sin. And of course, when we do that, we always think that our sins are not as bad as your sins, right? And since it's really important that we all recognize that tendency, we need to recognize that in our lives so that we make a proper application of today's message this morning, and we're going to focus in Romans chapter 2, but before we get into there, we need to point out three ways that we can exhibit this tendency to condemn the sin of others while not recognizing that the seriousness of our own sin. So we're going to dive into that a little bit this morning. So first of all, we need to know that we are spiritually blind when it comes to our own sin. What do I mean by that? Well, one of the best scriptural examples of this tendency is when Nathan comes to David to confront him about his sin with Bathsheba. Nathan described to David how a rich man took a poor man's only lamb in order to prepare a meal for his guest. And when David's anger was kindled against that man, and he declared that the rich man deserved to die, Nathan turned to David and he asked and said, you are the man. While David was quick to condemn the sin of others, he had a blind spot when it came to his own sin. And unfortunately, that is probably true of most of us as well. Secondly, we tend to ignore our sins. We might recognize our sin at the time, but rather than deal with that sin by confessing it to God and repenting, we have a tendency to just ignore our sin and hope that it will just go away. Now, for some reason, we have absolutely no problem remembering the sins of others. But we get spiritual amnesia, if you will, when it comes to our own sins. And finally, we rationalize our sin. One of the most common ways we do that is to rename the sin that we're committing. Other people lie. I just stretch the truth. Other people steal. I just borrow something that doesn't belong to me without asking. Other people have an anger problem. I'm just letting off a little steam. Other people have prejudices. I have convictions. 
It's not pornography, it's art. It's not adultery, it's an affair. We even take gossip and we call it a prayer request. If you've never done any of those things, then I guess this sermon is for everyone else. But if you have, then Paul's words at the beginning of Romans chapter 2 are relevant to your life and this message is something you need to hear and apply in your life. Before we read our passage this morning, I want to ask that you take your Bibles and open them to Romans chapter 1. And I'm certainly not going to review the entire chapter as we've done that in the last three weeks, but I do want to point out one significant feature of what Paul wrote in the last part of that chapter. So look at chapter 1, verses 18 through, which we covered last week. But I want you to look at the pronouns that Paul uses beginning in verse 18. And as you scan from verse 18 through the end of the chapter, notice that Paul consistently uses third-person pronouns. There, them, they, and themselves. And a quick count, there are at least 20 uses of third-person pronouns in those 15 verses. Now in that section... Paul is writing primarily about the Gentiles who engage in those pagan behaviors. And there is little doubt in my mind, and I'm sure in yours, that as Paul's fellow Jews read those words, they are responding with a hearty amen, figuring that those sinning pagan Gentiles were getting the wrath that they deserved. But Paul is about to turn the tables on them. Turn to chapter 2 now and follow along as I read it, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, before I go any further, what evidence do you see there that Paul is now addressing a different audience? than the one whom he was writing in the, last pa- in the last part of chapter 1. He's used, now using second person pronouns. You, yourself, your. And with that in mind, let me go back and read the first five verses of the chapter from the beginning. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, Although there is not universal agreement on Paul's audience here, there is little doubt that 
he's addressing a different group of people than the one he was describing at the end of chapter 1. By the time we get to verse 17 in chapter 2, Paul is clearly addressing the Jews, and I think that is also his audience here in the first part of the chapter. But even if it's not specifically the Jews to whom he is writing here, he is at least addressing those who were religious and who considered themselves to be moral, especially compared to the Gentile pagans Paul had already addressed. Now, that sounds a lot like the Jews to me. They thought because they were members of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, and they held to the religious traditions, they really weren't in the same class as the pagan Gentiles. They figured that since God was obligated to the whole nation, that they weren't subject, they weren't subject to the consequences of their personal sin at all. It's like they had a free pass. They had a you know, go directly to go, collect your $200. That's not the case. And I think if Paul were writing his letter today, this part of the letter would be directed to those who call themselves Christians and who even perhaps attend church regularly and live lives they consider to be moral. These people mistakenly think that because they are a member of a church that they too are somehow exempt from the consequences of their personal sin. We are not exempt. And so the title of the sermon is what? We're getting closer. This is not for everyone else. This is for you. This is for me. I'm addressing something to ourselves, not to everyone else. And that's what Paul's point is here. He is addressing all of us in regards to sin because none of us are exempt. These self-righteous people tend to be the hardest people to reach for Christ because they are blind to their own sin and their need to repentance. So Paul is very direct here. His message to these people. Here's how I would sum up that message. And I said it just a minute ago. It is impossible to really know God and not live a life of repentance. Although Paul is dealing here with the dangers of judging others without recognizing the sin in our own lives, that is really only a symptom of the underlying problem here, which is that these religious people failed to recognize that they needed to live a life that was characterized by that repentance just as much as the pagan Gentiles. So you can see where Paul is kind of turning the tables on them here. They thought they had an exemption. It didn't matter what they did or what they said, and they can judge, other, judge others as they sinned. But as soon as Paul directs it back to them, you kind of see their brows sweating a little here. They're like, oh, we're not exempt. This is for us as well. There are three related terms that are used in the first three verses of our passage. They are all forms of the Greek verb krino, which means to judge. Originally, the word meant to separate or to distinguish, but over time, 
It came to describe forming an opinion about someone or something, and it eventually came to mean to judge. Now, in the context of our passage, it carries with it the idea of being judgmental or uh, that of condemning others. Paul also refers to the judgment of God twice in this passage. The noun judgment that he uses there is derived from the verb that we just looked at. And finally, the word condemned in verse 1 is a compound verb built on crino that literally means to judge against. So Paul is describing exactly what the Jews were fearing. The Jews were not exempt. They are guilty of not recognizing their own sin. And in turn, they're causing themselves a whole heap of trouble. But not surprisingly, the verb to judge is in the present tense in this passage, indicating that those who were judging others engaged in that practice continually. So in other words, it was a lifestyle for them. I can continue to sin, but I'm not going to recognize it, but I'm going to recognize your sin and call you out for it. Probably because it made them feel better. They probably felt guilty. And some of them had no idea. Because again, they felt like this did not apply to them. But with that background in mind, we're now ready to see what we reveal about ourselves and our relationship to God when we judge others. So when I judge others, or when we judge others, we prove that we have no excuse. In verse 1, Paul picks up on the idea that he introduced in verse 20 in chapter 1 when he claimed that even the pagan Gentiles were without excuse because God had revealed himself in his creation. So if those that the Jews considered to be heathens had no excuse for their sin, then the Jews sure couldn't claim that they had excuse for their sin. After all, they had much more information and knowledge about God. They had the benefit of the scriptures and of corporate worship and teaching, first in the tabernacle and the temple and then later in the synagogue. When we judge others, we are admitting that we understand that God is holy. Let me repeat that. When we judge others... We are admitting that we understand that God is holy and that he has established certain standards for the way we are to live as his people. So when we go and we judge others because of what they've done, knowing full well we've done it ourselves, we're acknowledging that God is sovereign. We are acknowledging that God can save. We are acknowledging... That we are God's people. So it's a wonder to me how atheists have a claim that there is no God when they clearly in their arguments flat out claim that there is a God. It's because they're casting judgment on others without recognizing their own sin. When we judge others, we prove 
that we don't know God fully. Just as we saw last week with the pagan pagan Gentiles, these self-righteous Jews had a sin problem because they had a worship problem. And just like the Gentiles, they had exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And as Paul points out here, the reason that they had done this is because they really didn't know God. They were guilty of the same thing we have a tendency to do. We emphasize certain character traits of God while ignoring others. They had no problem recognizing that God is just. And that is the point Paul is making in verse 2 when he writes that we, including himself with the other Jews, know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. These self-righteous Jews had no problem with God judging the pagan Gentiles. And why not? It takes the blame off them. Why do we blame others? It takes the responsibility off of us. But in fact, they expected God to do that based on the fact that he is a righteous God and that the scriptures revealed that God would not leave the guilty unpunished, Exodus 34. They saw this as this was just behavior. God was fulfilling his promise by punishing those who deserved it not fully realizing that they deserve the punishment as well. They failed to recognize is that they too were also subject to God's justice. The other way that their knowledge fell short was that they were so focused on God's justice that they failed to recognize his kindness. They failed to remember that God had dealt with them in his kindness, exercising great patience with them. And as a result, they desired for God to treat the Gentiles with justice that was not tempered with kindness, while at the same time expecting God to treat them with kindness and to ignore his justice when it came to their sins. In other words, let's let God take care of them and maybe he'll, he'll, he'll forget about me and my sin. Frankly, we tend to be a lot like the Jews here. We have a tendency to want God to deal with others, especially those outside the body of Christ, and solely on the basis of his justice. They deserve it. They're sinning, they're living a life without God, so they deserve it. And that's the prevailing thought among Christians today, and it's sad. We should be loving on these people. We should be bringing them into the fold. But instead, we're so guilty of our own sin, we pass judgment on to others. God extends his kindness to all because it is his desire that his kindness will lead to repentance. You want to see someone come to God and to have a relationship with him? Be kind. Do not judge. Be that which God wants us to be. 
loving men and women, seeking to please God, seeking to enhance his kingdom by bringing those who do not know him into the fold. When we judge others, we don't become more righteous. We judge others to make ourselves feel better. And we, we, we mistake that feeling for righteousness. Paul is addressing some blatant hypocrisy on the part of the Jews here. They were engaging in exactly the same sins as the Gentiles. But in their twisted thinking, they thought that if they could make the Gentiles appear more unrighteous, that would actually make them look more righteous. And by the way, I ran across a great definition of a hypocrite last week. A hypocrite is someone who complains there's too much sex and violence in their DVD collection. And we've heard similar things. There's too much this in my stuff. There's too much stuff in your stuff. But you see, that's essentially what the Jews were doing here. They were practicing the same things that the Gentiles were doing and then calling attention to the sins of the Gentiles and expecting God to judge those sins and ignore theirs. But Paul certainly puts an end of that way of thinking in verse 3. He makes it clear that the Jews who are practicing sin in their lives were not going to escape the same judgment of God because they were going to experience the same judgment as the Gentiles were experiencing. There is only one way we become righteous before God, and it is not making someone else look less righteous in comparison. When we get to the conclusion of this section of Paul's letter at the, ends of, at the end of Romans 3, he is going to make it absolutely clear. He makes it absolutely clear all Jews and Gentiles alike have fallen short of the glory of God and sinned. And as we saw earlier in chapter 1, all of us who are in that boat can only become righteous before God and be saved from the wrath of God that we certainly all deserve. But we're saved by the gospel, which we accept into our lives by faith in Jesus alone. That's it the only way. When we judge others, we presume upon God's kindness. Now to me, verse 4 is really the heart of this passage this morning. What Paul is saying here is that a heart attitude that condemns others without recognizing the need for repentance in our own lives presumes upon the riches of God's kindness. The word that the English translation translates presumes in verse 4 is a Greek word that means to grossly underestimate the value or significance of something. It describes the failure to assess the true worth of something. And Paul is accusing these moral religious people of doing exactly that when it came to the riches of God's kindness. Paul uses three words here to emphasize and help us to understand better what God's kindness is like. 
The word translated kindness comes from a verb that means to furnish what is needed. So God is kind to us in that he furnishes what we need even when we don't deserve those needs. Secondly, Paul writes of God's forbearance. The word was originally the word for truce, and it describes refraining from the enforcement of something. In this case, Paul is using it to describe God's temporary clemency towards the punishment we deserve for our sin. And finally, Paul writes of God's patience. Now, this is a word that we've come across frequently before, and which literally means long-tempered. It describes one who has the ability to avenge some wrong, but chooses to withhold vengeance. So in effect, Paul is saying to the Jews, you think you are safe because you aren't currently experiencing God's judgment. Welcome to planet Earth. We are safe because we aren't currently experiencing God's judgment. Oh, but we are. Oh, but we are. But God is not patient with you because he is somehow condoning your behavior. He is not treating you with kindness and holding back his wrath because you are so moral that you don't deserve his wrath. He is treating you that way because he is giving you the opportunity to recognize your own sin and repent. In other words, in other words here, it is impossible to really know God and not live a life of repentance. What we learn here is that it is not the badness of man, but rather the goodness of God that leads to repentance. Merely recognizing my own sin and feeling guilty about it won't bring repentance by itself. It is only when I recognize the kindness and forbearance and patience of God that I am brought to a place of repentance. Perhaps the best illustration of that truth in the Bible is found in the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son didn't repent when he thought about his own badness, but rather he remembered the goodness of his father. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? Luke chapter 15. When we really begin to understand the limitless riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience. This repentance is always the natural response to knowing God like that. Because his kindness is so overwhelming and so undeserved, repentance is the only response that makes any sense at all. So what does repentance mean? The word that Paul uses here is a word that literally means to change one's mind. But as it is used in the scriptures, it always describes a profound change of mind and heart in which we choose to look at our sin from God's perspective so that we no longer see it as attractive or desirable. But we see it as an ugly thing and things that are not deserving of God's 
patience. In fact, it's deserving of God's wrath. It is knowing that we deserve to die because of our sin and turning to God in utter gratitude because he chooses to exercise his kindness, forbearance, patience, rather than his wrath, which we clearly deserve. Repentance is not something that we just do once and we're done with it, but rather a lifestyle in which we constantly turn to Jesus in humility and faith, acknowledging that he alone is God. He alone takes away that sin. He alone is my delivery to repentance. I'm confident that God is speaking to all of us here this morning. And like I said, particularly in verse 4, he wants us to understand that he extends the riches of his kindness to us, not so we can sit back and think that we're something special, but it's to think that because we call ourselves a Christian or have been baptized or are a member of this or some other church, we are somehow immune from his wrath. He treats us with kindness so that we would be led to a place of repentance. So now we can see why it is impossible to really know God and not live a life of repentance. Because when we judge others, we know that we are storing up God's wrath. Both within and outside of this church, many people unfortunately mistake God's kindness and patience for his permissiveness or even approval, especially of their sin. But verse 5 addresses that mistaken idea head on. Those who refuse to be brought to repentance by God's kindness and storing up for themselves a storehouse of sin and judgment. Day by day, little by little, they are accumulating God's wrath, which is only going to make things worse for themselves come judgment day. They are so deceived, thinking that because things are going pretty well and God has held back his judgment temporarily, that they have somehow escaped his wrath completely. But as Paul makes quite clear, treading on God's kindness right now by failing to repent means that one day they are going to face his full fury. As with many of the messages we've heard, especially this year, we know that the danger this morning is that you'll think that this is a really good message. Some of you will say, well, that was a good message. For everyone else, that is. I know that all of you have thought at least some of the sermons you've heard in the past. But I say that because I know I have. It's also easy to read the Bible and run across passages where you immediately think of someone else that really needs to read those words without ever considering how they might apply to you. I've been there too. 
But I can assure you this morning that this passage and this sermon is not merely for everyone else. And if you still think it is, then you'd better go to the website and listen to this message again. When you go home, click on YouTube, listen to it again. This passage and this message are absolutely relevant for every single one of us. Because we find a foolproof way to evaluate the health of our personal relationship with God. If it is indeed true that it is impossible to really know God and not live a life of repentance, then it's actually very easy to evaluate how well I know God. All I have to do is take an honest look at my life and see whether it is characterized by repentance. And if it is, then I can be confident in my relationship to God and know that it is a healthy one. But if I am keeping my focus on my own sin rather than the sin of others and confessing that sin to God and repenting of that sin and by seeing it from God's perspective, then I can be assured that I have a healthy understanding of who God really is. And if that is true of your life, then you need to get down on your knees and thank God with every fiber of your being. Because you have done absolutely nothing to earn or deserve his kindness, forbearance, and patience that makes that possible. On the other hand, if I'm constantly looking around at the sin of others and figuring that I must be doing okay because my sin isn't as bad as theirs and God hasn't zapped me with a lightning bolt yet, then I'm actually in real danger because that means whether I know it or not, I'm actually storing up God's wrath. If that's true of your life, then you also need to get down on your knees and pray with every fiber of your being and ask God to reveal the sin in your life so that you can confess that to him and repent of that sin. That is the only appropriate response that we can make to the kindness, forbearance, and patience that God has extended to you and he has extended to me, even though we don't deserve it one bit. The solution to sin, prayer. The solution to sin is prayer. While we cannot cut out sin in our life, though we may try, we need to take it to God. God, take it to God. Either way, this is not just a sermon for everyone else. It is a sermon for you. It is a sermon for me. And every single one of us this morning has something we need to lift up to God. So I'm going to take a few minutes and I'm going to allow us to pray, to lift those things up to God. David will come and he'll sing But for the next few minutes, I wanted you to take a moment and pray. Pray for the sin in your life. Pray for the sin of the life of others.
Pray for this church. Pray for the leadership. Pray for those that are out on the battlefield every day, persecuted, all for the glory of God. So take that time now. Let's just take a few minutes and let's pray. We know that it's easy to pass judgment onto others and fail to recognize our own faults. Lord, help us to take off the blinders of our own sin and to deal with it directly through you. Lord, there are many temptations external forces, things that will keep us from that righteous relationship with you. I pray this morning that if there are those who do not know you in that personal way, that they would come to know you this morning. We invite the Holy Spirit to come within their heart to nudge them to know that whatever sin may be in their life, God, you have forgiven them. You have sent your son to die for that sin and we are forgiven. Lord, lead us upon the path to repentance. We know that we deserve very little from you. But through your love and your grace and your mercy, we have the privilege to be in your house this morning to praise your name, to witness the supernatural power that you have, Lord, to penetrate our lives even when we push you out. You find a way back. Lord, thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that it is your desire to save your people day by day. And Lord, even when things look their bleakest, that's when you shine. That's when you give hope to those who have none. 
Lord, use us to be instruments of that hope. Help us to recognize those opportunities, Lord. Open our eyes to the things that you've laid out before us, that you've laid out in your word. And Lord, give us the confidence, the endurance, the mentality of Paul to approach the impossible with the knowledge knowing that through you all things are possible. Lord, we love you. We give you thanks for the things we have. Lord, we want to give you thanks for the struggle. Because you teach us so much. Little life lessons, Lord, that bring us closer to you. Let us cherish those. We could never repay you for what you've done for us. But let this time of prayer this morning be a start to that. We thank you, Lord. We lift your name on high. And it's in your name we pray this morning. Amen. May his Holy Spirit be welcome here. Mike, would you please put up, draw me close, please. It all begins the Lord drawing us to himself. He initiates. But we must respond. May that be our heart's cry this morning.
pray that you go with us and guide us on the path which leads us to repentance. Thank you, Lord, that you love us, that you've forgiven us in spite of the things that we do. Lord, we don't deserve it, but you have that mercy and grace bestowed upon us, and we are ever grateful. Thank you for this day, and we love you. And it's in your name we pray this morning, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great day in the Lord. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.